Hey everyone, and welcome back to Motherkind. It's your host, Zoe Blasky here. And this is the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more community, confidence, clarity, and self-awareness. I believe the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children is become the most empowered, resilient, confident versions of ourselves. And this podcast exists to help you do just that. This week, I have a joyful guest for you. It is Laura Brand. She is a mum of two. She's an author of three incredible books. Her newest book is called Slow Down and Be Here Now, which is just a gorgeous book about nature and how it can help us slow and be more present. I loved this conversation. The thing I loved most about Laura was how honest she was. She reminded me about how messy, imperfect, joyful, hard and wonderful motherhood is. I really loved hearing about Laura's forced release and she explains how that came about from micromanaging and controlling her household and what she learned from that. And it is going to help you so much because I know that story really helped me. So here is the episode. I hope you love it. Before we get on to this week's episode, that is something that I've been waiting to tell you and I am really excited to share. And that is that Motherkind is the official podcast partner for The Baby Show with Little 2023. It is the 3rd to the 5th of March in Excel London and I will be there on Saturday the 4th recording a live podcast with the wonderful Kate Ferdinand talking about all things blended families. The Baby Show with Little is the UK's largest and best loved pregnancy, baby and parenting event. And it has been running for an incredible 21 years. Tickets can be bought online at thebabyshow.co.uk forward slash Excel. That's thebabyshow.co.uk forward slash Excel. And if you pop in the quote motherkind before Thursday, the 2nd of March at midnight, you'll get your ticket for only £16 a person. So please do get yourself a ticket and come and see me. I would love to meet you and say hi. Oh, Laura, I'm so excited to chat to you. You're one of those people, I don't know you, but I feel like I know you because I have followed you for so long and I've read all your books and massively your work helped us through lockdown, through the hell that was lockdown with young kids. So I'm really, really excited to connect. Thanks again for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That's so lovely to hear. It's funny because this time of year obviously starts to remind me of the time of year where we were slightly going into it and it was sort of getting a bit unsure and scary. And we start the beginning of spring was sort of when my first book came out. For me, it's a very evocative time of doing a lot of crafts. Like it's like really making a lot of Play-Doh and squishy soap. How old were yours when we went into lockdown? Gosh, four and two and a half. So quite young and intense. But weirdly, I had actually been writing the book in the sort of two years before. So everything I was doing, I had absolutely no idea that it would be as useful as it was. I thought it would be like a niche thing. Oh, people could make things at home or use cardboard and cereal box shadow puppets. And I literally couldn't believe it. Even myself was glad to have the book at times, to be honest with you, even as a reminder of how to 
engage because I think that was the hardest bit was trying to keep sane and keep bonded and not too stressed and have fun, which I think for those of us who weren't in immediate danger or dealing with awful traumas or emergencies, there was a bit of that to it. There was a bit of fun for families with young kids because I don't think we'll ever have that time again when we were alone with them like that. By lockdown three, there was no part of me that was finding it fun. No, actually, I'm very much talking about the first... At the start, the first one, and the weather was quite good, wasn't it? And there was this sense of, yeah, as you say, for those of us who were lucky enough not to be impacted in that horrific way that so many were, there was that sense. But did that book, having such an impact, also being at home with no childcare, with two young children, did that bring its own challenges on that tension of lots of people wanting to talk to you about the book and promote it online, I'm sure, but also you haven't got childcare at home. The thing I actually found sort of amazing but struggled with was the newness of having a book in a public space. I was challenged. Of course, we were all challenged at times, but because actually my husband and I really took it on together. So I don't remember ever thinking I wished that there was somebody else helping us. I sort of, if anything... I think I was probably dealing with my own sort of insecurities and things like that over, is it doing well? Or is it, you know, like having my own sort of inner critic? So I do remember like the challenge for me of having put a lot of energy into a piece of work and then it being out there. And if anyone has written a book, you'll know it sort of feels like you're releasing sort of a part of yourself. And I think probably it was just my first new experience of that, but it also connected me to a lot of people a lot of people. And I would never have had that. Of course, there would have been a different approach. There was a whole plan to promote the book and I didn't do any of it because I had to generate it myself. So Instagram became quite a big part of my life in that time. And I think that can come with its own stresses. Absolutely. You know, you talked there about that sort of transition that you went through, you know, birthing that book. And I think it is like sort of birthing a book, isn't it? The process of it. I'm wondering what it was like for you when you birthed your children. I know you and I are both sort of passionate about this idea of women becoming more and more themselves through motherhood. Tell us about what that was like for you, that transition to motherhood. I had a really interesting journey of, I think, education, I would say more than anything. It's been the biggest learning curve for me because I thought I would have a baby a certain way. I thought that I don't know what I thought. I just didn't know or have any idea of the actual empowerment of pregnancy and labor and then motherhood. So I think I originally felt that it was something that sort of got taken out of your hands. You got on a sort of train track of, oh, well, this is what happens. And then they hand you a baby and then everything. And actually, I worked very hard to shake that off and... I found it quite challenging. There was a lot of crying in the early part of my pregnancy. I was very unwell as well. I had um, hyperemesis with both children. And there was a lot of facing a different part of myself like, oh, okay, so maybe I can do it a different way. Maybe it's not going to be totally medical. Maybe it's not going to be completely to plan. I have to let go. It was about surrender. And I know that we both had the same hypnobirthing teacher, Holly DeCruz, who I always talk about, I think probably on every podcast I do. She's been one of the most important people in my life because 
I had never heard of hypnobirthing before. And I actually called her to get advice on how to deal with nausea and sickness. I mean, I was way beyond <laughs> breathing through it, to be honest. I mean, I actually ended up in hospitals. That's a whole nother topic. I feel like that needs a book in itself. But I actually connected with her over that. And then she was like, you know, have you thought about trying hypnobirthing? And I was like, what is it? Is it hypnosis? Is it? And she was like, well, really, all it is is breathing techniques and fear release and a lot of good work with your partner, your birth partner, whoever it's going to be, to connect you to the pregnancy and the labor and a bit of birth education. And it changed everything. I understood the body differently. I didn't know a lot of stuff. I couldn't believe, like sometimes she was saying things and I was like, what? You bleed after you've given birth? <laughs> like, oh my God, I didn't realize there would be blood. And she'd be like, you know, that's not a bad thing. And blood's not always a bad, you know, like I remember her shaping everything I was thinking, like to be just a bit, well, less fearful, less fear orientated. So after our birth, which we did, it, it, well, all births end up being different how you imagine them, but we did end up having our first daughter in a water birth. I really implemented the tools of hypnobirthing big time and did the same for my second. And then I trained as a hypnobirthing teacher after. So although I don't practice very much, I have taught a few couples and I really enjoy doing it. You know, it's something that if I had probably more time, I would want to put more into, but it's something I love and I'm glad when I get to share it with other people. Yeah, I feel exactly the same about it and the same about Holly. It's just mind blowing to me how I think it's the name of it that causes so much blockers with people. Hypnobirthing, it sounds sort of hippie or like you're going into a trance. I think people get really confused about it. But I had the same experience, like learning about what actually happens in labor. And the, I had no idea there were two phases of labor. I didn't know there was an up phase, a down phase. I didn't know about transition. I didn't know any of that. And it was just mind blowing to me and really empowering and birth just goes how it goes, doesn't it? But I think if you can feel like, not that the outcome is necessarily how you planned it, which it rarely is, but that you've had some, and Holly talks about this amazingly, that you've had some sort of input into what's happening somehow. Exactly. That's what's so important. So you feel like your choices were not taken away from you. You know that you are, or your birth partner, in the, in the positions where you can't make your own choices, you know you've discussed it and discussed it, and you have somebody that's got your back. And my husband benefited from it hugely. In fact, he was the one that was encouraging it in the first place and really into it. And then he was like, let's just have the baby at home. And I was like, not quite ready for that, actually. <laughs> you know, not actually. That's what we did. Holly got me so confident. I was like, I can do this at home. That's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. That's such a great thing. That was where we, we talked about that a lot. And it was my choice in the end, but to go to a birth center, which... I just felt comfortable there and that's what I wanted. But yeah, I think that even when the birth has an unexpected outcome and possibly not the outcome someone might want, it's the tools leading up to that point. And it's knowing that you have options and you can ask questions. That's the key thing. And I think that the asking questions and getting answers and not being in the dark while you're in this situation where, frankly, you're putting yourself entirely, sometimes in, in the case where things go unexpectedly, you're putting your life in somebody else's hands. You need to know that you know what's going on, that you understand that people are talking to you. It's very empowering, the hypnobirthing education and learning and process. I always encourage mums to do it. 
I still use loads of the breathing. And so you talked about empowerment. Have you always felt quite empowered by motherhood? No, I would say that I still actually kind of battle with it, to be honest with you, this sort of idea of empowerment. And mainly, I think also because tiredness comes into life quite a lot. I think when you feel tired, you just feel like, oh, just whatever. I don't know. I don't care. I'm not sure. I'm unsure. I'm indecisive. So I think actually, yes, the more you sort of do for your well-being and your mental health, probably the better position you are to be in a place of power and decisiveness and certainty. The birth itself did empower me. It did make me think, oh my God, this thing has happened to me. And I birthed this child and I feel like I entered a different realm. I became a different person. But then I think quickly other things come into play. You're nervous the first time you take the baby out. You don't like people saying things in case you get upset because you're offended by things easily when you're hormonal and sensitive. So it's been like a roller coaster, really, to be honest with you. And it's something I still have to really work on because I would say I'm not there with it. You know, it's like the empowerment or the feeling of like being an empowered woman it comes up for me and it feels like it is definitely there, but just not all the time. And I think that can just be totally circumstantial. And if we're stressed, I would say that motherhood brought it forth more than any other thing that's happened in my life. I also feel like no one feels empowered all the time. I like that word empowerment. I think part of my empowerment is allowing myself to have really bad days and to know that you know, that's part of it, isn't it? Because when I think that I have to be a certain way, then that's disempowering. Do you know what I mean? I think it's trying to give ourselves a break a bit. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think that's the important thing. And that's the thing I'm not very good at. (laughs) What are you like as a mother? You talked about surrendering. And I heard you talk about this on another podcast around that tendency that we can have as mothers to want to sort of micromanage and control and be in everything. And you had this experience, didn't you, where you couldn't do that? Tell us about that and what that brought up for you. Well, it's funny. I was just talking about it before this conversation because I was telling someone, a relatively new friend, actually, that didn't know me at the time where my back was the biggest part of my life. And I actually said, God, before I met you, my bad back was my identity. I was literally like a person who was just hunched forward and limping and couldn't sit up. And everything was just a problem because I was just in so much pain all the time. And I'm over, ordinarily over everything in the household. So I'm over the kids, what they eat, the family. I'm over what everybody kind of does. I mean, I think my husband just trusts that I'm like quite good at decision making around that stuff. We do talk about most things together. Well, we do talk about everything together in terms of how we want to raise them and things like that. But I can be quite controlling around stuff. And I think it's to everybody's benefit at times, to be honest with you, because Otherwise, you can see like, oh, God, yeah, if they don't go to bed at a certain time, we know we're dealing with that a week later or whatever, you know. So I would say that although the one area I don't micromanage is arts and crafts, which is lucky because I did write a book on that, I'm quite relaxed about that stuff, much more so than my husband, who just gets absolutely like, oh, my God, they've got scissors. Oh, no. I'm very relaxed about them finding their own creative flow and stuff, which does result in a lot of mess. But other areas for me are quite difficult to let go of the control. I was thinking this morning how hard it is to get them to get dressed in the morning and how I feel like I'm 
rather than sort of saying it once and then being like, okay, well, if they don't get dressed on time, they're going in their pajamas. I can be quite over them. And it it feels like it's like labored, you know, like, come on, like get dressed. When I wasn't very well, when I had this back problem, which was going to result in having a surgery, which thank God I didn't have in the end and ended up finding an amazing healer who healed my back entirely. I was like on bed rest for 10 days. I couldn't get up. I couldn't walk because I had sciatica in my left leg and my husband and somebody else had sort of intervened and agreed, like, you're not really allowed to do anything for 10 days. Like you have to take the pressure off your back. And I actually went through such an emotional purge being in that bedroom. Like I literally was like sweating, crying. I couldn't bear listening to stuff in the house going on where I wasn't involved. I could hear stuff. Like at one point, admittedly, I did hear my children drawing on a wall. And then my husband saying, oh, just keep it to that bit of the wall. And I was like, what's going on out there? (laughs) And then he'd be like, it's okay. Everything's okay. Don't worry. I found it really hard. I was very challenged. It took two days for me to reach out to a friend and say, I'm in this thing. I'm in bed. I'm bed bound. I'm not allowed to get up. What am I going to do? Can I talk to you? Can I talk to someone? You know, like I just didn't know what to do with myself. I think I would be better at it now. In fact, I crave it, to be honest with you. But at the time, I just felt very, very, very challenged by this idea of surrender and letting go of the control of the family, the household. So it was definitely an interesting time. You were describing it. It sounds like, you know, like any change, I don't know if this is true for you, it's true for me that I almost have to go through like a withdrawal of that behavior. And then it gives me a bit more spaciousness around it. Not that I don't do it again, but it's just, I see it differently. Did you start to see that micromanaging that control differently? Because I know everyone listening probably will resonate with this. Yes, actually I did have, by the way, I would say withdrawal was the word. Um, I definitely And I would say that what I learned from it was that everything was entirely fine and okay without me. I mean, they missed me and they missed my presence and I missed their, like I missed doing the regular things. But actually what I found, and this is quite a difficult thing to explain because I don't suffer with OCD, but I realize I have a lot of rituals around even the way I prepare the bedroom at night for bedtime, you know, things have to be a certain way. I don't know if it's just the rhythm that I've gone into because I find it easier in my mind. There's just a checklist. It's like drawing the curtains, pulling back the bed, laying the pajamas out. It can sometimes be easier for me to do it that way, less stressful rather than it being chaos and the kids pulling clothes out of the cupboard and everything. My husband doesn't do stuff like that. He does things entirely different. He lets them choose the pajamas. He doesn't close the curtains. He lets them go to sleep in a different way to me. In that, I probably do too much backstroking and like waiting until they're asleep. And he's a bit more sort of like, right, there's your story. And I'll just be in the other room and I'll come and check in five minutes. And I must say that my energy output is very high with those little jobs. So I think that what I learned was if I don't do it that way, It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean I'm not doing it right. It doesn't mean they're not going to sleep properly. Because I think the sleep thing, why I highlight it is because you can get into having a lot of rituals around sleep because as a mother, you fear them not sleeping. So you think, oh, if I don't do it this way or leave that light on just that way, maybe they're going to wake up tonight. Then I'm going to be awake. 
And actually, that's not the case <laughs> at all. And what I learned was I can let go. Things don't need to be perfectly done. Things don't need to be exactly the same way. It can be just much more relaxed and they'll still thrive. I think what I learned was be careful of my output on the little stuff. You're so right. Because thousands of those, which there would be across a day, right, from 6am to 8pm, which is when we're often on, right? Thousands of those. You know, it's exhausting. It is. The little jobs as well, even if it's like, I don't know, at the moment, I'm finding that getting them out the door in the morning, it's coming right down to like, repeatedly asking for shoes to be put on or reminding them to brush their teeth. I know that's the thing for a lot of people. The other day, my husband and I both said to him in the car, could you two start just brushing your teeth without being told? Is there any chance you could just sort of like, just do it? Because <laughs> otherwise we're constantly like, right, brush your teeth, brush your teeth, brush your teeth. It's like, oh my God, am I going crazy? And uh, yeah, so you're right. It's the little, little things and then they add up to exhaustion. A quick word from this week's sponsor, Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 from Athletic Greens well over a year ago now. I originally started because I wanted more energy and I wanted to look after my health more proactively. And I've got to say, it has done all of that and more. And lots of you are very, very kind and saying that my skin has been looking good on Instagram when I've been sharing recently. And I put that down 100% to Athletic Greens. So AG1 is a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, aging, basically all the things that I can hardly say in one breath. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews and I can see why. It is incredible and it even tastes nice too. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash motherkind. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash motherkind to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Quick word from this week's sponsor, Explore Learning. Explore Learning are the leaders in personalised learning. So they help children learn at a pace and level that is unique to them using an adaptive curriculum. So like me, Explore Learning believes that every child has a unique, amazing mind. So learning needs to be personalised to them. Now, as we all know, sometimes those unique needs aren't always met in a really busy classroom. And that is where Explore Learning comes in. They use an adaptive curriculum that introduces children to what they need to know when they need to know it. Their tuition, whether online or in centre, is delivered by amazing expert tutors who work really hard to build trusting relationships with the children, which helps engage them in the lessons and helps them get the most from their learning. So if you want to help your child unlock the joy of learning this year, then you can save £50 at Explore Learning from the 14th of Jan to the 25th of Feb. Tuition is available in 95 Ofsted registered vibrant learning centres throughout the UK or online at explorelearning.co.uk. That's explorelearning.co.uk. 
How do you counter some of that? Because this is something we talk about all the time on the podcast, like the stress of it and the intensity of it is so high. We have to counter that. And I know for you, like nature, presence, crafting, locking into your creativity, but can you tell us how you do that like day to day? It's quite hard because I'm actually a person who weirdly has these very small rituals of output, but not many things for input. Like um, I don't go to a regular class or I'm quite ill-disciplined with my own self-care. I would say that I probably counterbalance the sort of stress. And There are things like I'm quite good at recognizing when I need to go to bed. If, for example, they've gone to bed and rather than then continuing to do a million other things, I might go to bed. You know, last night, I think I went to bed at 7.30 because they were asleep. I thought, oh, I'm just going to go to bed. You know, that's good because I do love sleeping. I'm not a really deep sleeper. So I think when I can get to bed early, I'm quite happy with that. I love my own time. So I would say that once our daughters, they're at school, I find it quite restorative, actually, even to be doing quite boring, mundane things, but on my own. I mean, yesterday I made a soup and then I started doing the work I needed to do after that. And it felt quite nice to do that in that order as well. I kind of knew that the meal for the evening was prepped and I felt like then I was able to get on with quite a heavy, boring admin task I had to do. I think what's important to me is not overly filling the diary, not overbooking myself. That would be it. Like really, really making sure that I'm having enough downtime on my own. You know, that for me is quite important. And I think that that is partly how I do restore myself. I think like having time where I'm not having to really talk or direct people, children, or I'm really only in charge of myself. That's really nice. I like that. For me, that's lovely. Getting a sandwich from the local bakery and sitting and doing a bit of writing. I love that. That for me is like, that's filling the cup. I am exactly the same. And I think it's like that, you know, that's the hallmark of introvert, isn't it? Is that we restore by being alone. And sometimes it's like, do I want to go out with friends? And I love my friends, but equally it's more output, isn't it? It's more energy and it can be amazing, but also I definitely need that time where it's just me. And I think you're right. Like the sensory input of motherhood and working and being creators like you are. And I am like the sensory input of that is so massive on our nervous systems. Like I really do need that downtime. Me too. It's like decompression. Are you into um, meditation? Well, I'm in a household of what I would say would be a very big meditator. I mean, my husband's like so into it. It's the main part of his day. I incidentally don't really. I find the benefit. I mean, we laugh about it because he's just like, how can we live together? And and all of the opportunities to meditate, like, you know, even when you wake up really early and you're just sort of sitting there and you saw some... Do you not want to just have a moment sort of <laughs> with yourself for meditation? And I would rather just kind of get up and get going. So basically, I find it very, very challenging to meditate because I'm quite a go, go, go kind of person. However, when I do, I do feel the benefit of it. The type of meditation that I do do and I really enjoy is yoga nidra. So I have an app on my phone and there's one particular one that I just listen to and nothing works like it for me. It's just immediately sends me into this in-between space. And I don't know what goes on there, but then I wake up and I feel like I've had 10 hours sleep. It's 10 minutes, you know? So although I don't meditate in the same way as my husband and that he kind of has his own specific way of doing it and he does it kind of 
with ease, I would say, to some degree, and that he does it at the same time, you know, every day, sometimes twice a day. I have to kind of be like in the mood. I have to find the moment to do it where I'm like, right, I can really feel like I'm having a craving for that now. And when I do it, I do feel the benefits of it. As a family, I know we do try to encourage our children to sit and be in quiet peace for moments. It's not very easy. Sometimes with them, we need to really set a little environment, you know, maybe light a candle and sit with them. And I would rather they inherited the meditation than not, because I think that it's very beneficial. It's something that I suppose comes and goes again. But Yoga Nidra is the go-to for me. Yeah, Yoga Nidra, it like saved me in the first year of motherhood. It's insane. I used to get my legs up a wall and just put one on, not for long, like you say. And it was like, I think I read a study and it's like equivalent, 20 minutes is equivalent to three hours of sleep in terms of how restorative it is on your body. It's just insane, isn't it? It really benefits a lot of women. It's really, 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 really powerful. It's interesting what you say about the kids because I've been really into meditation in my time because I'm 12-step background as well. And then I sort of go in and out of it. But the more that I look at my girls, I realize they just sort of naturally do it. I used to think, oh, I'm going to teach them to meditate. And it's like, actually, they're way more present than I am naturally. So it's like, I'm going to be learning from them, not the other way around. I know, actually, the one place where I do really action it is in nature and sort of out and about. So for me, although it wouldn't be necessarily sitting cross-legged and being in total silence, I am naturally very, very present in nature. And the children, as all children are also present in nature, naturally, it's just something that you don't really need to teach them. My book, Slow Down and Be Here Now, is about looking at things up close. And what it does is it draws the focus into a particular thing that's quite detailed and small and you can look and notice things that you might not look if you're just walking fast or looking at the big picture. But if you hone in, there's ways to sort of really appreciate unbelievable beauty up close. And to be honest with you, that is all a form of meditation, that sort of observation in nature and even walking. For me, that would be the other very big aspect of where probably more mindfulness than meditation itself, but mindfulness and meditation, I suppose, come into my life. I love the new book. I think people get this idea, like when they hear, particularly mothers, like when we hear like get out into nature, they're like, well, I haven't got the time to get into the car, to drive to the countryside, to go to an expansive. And I love how you talk about actually, even in inner city London, you walk down and there'll be a little daffodil that we've broken out of the concrete. And could you take just an extra fleeting second even just to notice that? I love how practical you make it because I think for lots of mothers like super stress might be working multiple jobs like maybe on their own and this idea of getting into nature feels like a blocker doesn't it but I think the more accessible we can make it the better and the book does that brilliantly I think at the end of the book I wrote like a poem or a mindful sort of passage on how to sort of ground yourself wherever you are and when I was writing it, I really thought, gosh, it has to be about wherever you are, whatever you feel under your feet. That could be concrete, patio, pavement, grass, whatever. And I think it's important because, like you say, nature immediately gives this idea of rural. And actually, it's not always. And for most people, you know, we're, we're talking about finding things in the local park or out the window or 
wherever, like, like you said, the crack in the pavement. And I think that that's really important to encourage because I think that's where it might prove difficult for some people to be open-minded to exploring nature because it seems like a privilege or a luxury. And also, I think just with the speed of life these days, it can feel so counterintuitive, right? To just slow down to the point where you're able to observe like a little bud of a flower or what have you found are some of the benefits of doing that for someone that might need convincing? They're like, I've got a hundred things on my to-do list, ladies, and my head is spinning. I do not have time to look at a flower. What are some of the benefits that someone could get from just that like micro slowing? If you're talking about with your children, for example, then we are all spending time with our children. And maybe we're spending time where we're watching something. And maybe we're spending time where we're walking from A to B. You know, it could be the shops, it could be the school, wherever it is, or it could be a walk. As parents, adults, whoever we are, feel hurried into a destination or a final destination. Where are we going? What are we doing? And I think that the benefit of what we can learn from children more than anything, is that they will stop and look at stuff. And there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't join them in that. And I would say I've learned the most from my children doing that. If they ask what a tree is, and I don't know what it is, then I'll look it up and I'll have to explore that. And I'll think, gosh, yeah, you're right. I actually don't know what that is. Or, you know, they love looking for footprints and things, or even if it's a treasure hunt on a walk, and it might be just to find a pine cone and a nice looking pebble or whatever. I don't know what it might be, a feather, those sort of things. If you can join in with that, I think there's a lot of benefit to it. When you're alone, of course, I think it's funny because I sometimes notice, you know, mostly you'll notice things that are on your own path. So, you know, like for example, when you're in the car, sometimes I've noticed there'll be like a spider inside the car window and you know, obviously, if you're not driving, by the way, I'm not suggesting you start getting distracted by a spider while you're actually meant to be driving. But say you were parked or you've not driven yet or you're in a car, whatever. It's sometimes just really, really, really grounding and calming to sort of watch it go about its business for like a split second. And it's not like I'm even encouraging, oh, you have to go and find a forest. You have to go on a walk in a field. I'm talking about like, noticing something in the house. Yeah. A spider spinning a web in the window or in the car or a ladybird when they come in from the winter and they're in the window ledges and you think, well, I wonder what they're all doing. And like a moment of just noticing, it doesn't have to be like a really up close and detailed exploration of what's going on. It can just be like a nod to it, you know, noticing. And I think that's enough for a lot of us, you know, in the busy worlds that we live in. I think you're right. Because I noticed this about my days, like, I think that hurry and stress builds on hurry and stress. So the more that I'm like hurrying, the more stressed I feel. And then the more I have to hurry and then, and then I'm just like frazzled. And I really notice, like in my own day, if I can just pause for like not long, like a couple of minutes and whether it's like, you know, like you say, like, just look at something like look outside. I'm surrounded by trees, right? Look at the trees or just take some breath. It almost resets that stress hurry and then I start again with the stress and hurry, right? But it doesn't build it doesn't build it up to that point where I'm then like completely frazzled or then obviously I'm going to snap at the kids when I pick them up from school or whatever the impact is on that. It's almost like those little reset buttons, isn't it? It is. It's moments to reset, moments that are just actually incidental rather than you having to seek them. Thinking about that sort of stress and hurry, what is it that stresses 
you out? You've talked about like getting them out the door. Like what are the other things that, that stress you out? I do get stressed when the children don't listen. I get stressed about the sort of not listening. I wouldn't say I'm an enormous disciplinarian of neither of us are. It's quite a relaxed household. But when I feel like I'm saying the same thing and I think, oh my God, I've said this 10 times. And it can be that they're just engaged in their own thing. But sometimes it can be just like, I'm not connecting. So I get stressed when I can't connect with them. And it can be my own stuff as well as their natural inability to concentrate on things for too long. So I would say that that in terms of motherhood would definitely be something that stresses me. I do get stressed when I've got too many plans, when I've got too much going on. When I feel like there's something I need to do and I'm not able to recognize exactly what it is. And then I feel like I've run out of time and I'm like, oh, what is it I needed to do for myself? And don't get me wrong. I am showering regularly. I'm quite a clean person. But you know, like if you're in a rush in the morning and you maybe haven't showered and you think, oh, I'll just put my clothes on, we'll go on the school run, whatever. I actually don't like not having a shower in the morning. I feel like it wakes me up. It refreshes me. I feel like I'm ready to go after I've had a shower. And sometimes I don't know exactly what it is that I'm feeling. And I think, oh yeah, I didn't take five minutes to have a quick shower. That's not enough time. I have not taken enough time for myself if I haven't been able to do that, you know? And often I can't exactly notice what it is. So it comes out sideways and I start feeling impatient and I start feeling like everyone's taking too much of my time. And then I realize it's like, oh yes, I didn't stop at all today. I didn't do one thing for myself. And that's where it can build up. That can be stress build up when you don't recognize what it is that you need for yourself. It's like that drip, drip, drip of just pushing our needs down, isn't it? And then I love that phrase come out sideways because it's so true. I used to think that I could just sort of ignoring my needs wouldn't have a consequence. I was like, it's fine that I don't do this. It's fine that I haven't got time for that. I haven't got time. And then you're like, oh shit, this actually has really big consequences over time. Exactly. It grinds you down. What are some of the biggest things you've had to unlearn in motherhood about yourself and life? Gosh. Well, I would say, I mean, so much stuff around sort of actually literally birth and pregnancy. I would say that you think it's going to be a certain way, but each child is different, even if they're your own children. You know, so all the things you have to unlearn next time you have a child, if you have more than one. You have a child, you do things a certain way. Then if you've, you know, if you're in a position, which I'm very grateful to be in where I've, you know, had another child, then you're unlearning everything from before because you're doing it differently. They're a different person. So I would say that it's kind of constant unlearning because it's always surprising. Nothing ever goes how you want it to go. It's always changing, ever changing. One week they want to do the thing that you sign them up to, the next week they don't. Then they want to do it again. Like it's like, oh, okay, right. Oh, and then the food thing, you know, they like food, they don't like a food. You think you're going to try and have a family meal, then it goes disastrously wrong. I think the whole thing is like learning, unlearning, learning, unlearning. I'd say that would be it. I think it's all of it in a way. There's no one thing. It all changes so much that you can't really have a set way of doing things because you need to adapt so quickly and so often. I think about this all the time, like the flexibility that we have to have as parents, and I think particularly mothers, is just mind-blowing to me. As in like, okay, so it's this now. Okay, so it's this now. Okay, so it's this now. And then it's bonkers that people can't recognize that or often, you know, on a societal level, we don't recognize the skill of that. 
you know, when we invite mothers back into the workplace, like what a skill to think on our feet and be that flexible and that intuitive, you know, it's just mind blowing to me that the hundreds of things every day that we flex around and we shift around and we can handle and adapt to. I would say that with that flexibility of like, for example, oh, we're doing this. Oh, we're not doing this. You also have to know yourself enough to be like, I have to remember I'm actually in charge here. I have to remember that like, actually my husband and I'm making the decisions, not the children. So if they want to watch another episode of something, if they want to go out after they've been doing something, I think they should be going home to rest. Whatever it is, you have to know enough about the bigger picture to be able to go, yeah, I want to be go with the flow, but I also know what's best in this situation. And I think that's quite hard as well. That's a challenge because I think that the underconfidence of a parent is common. I think you just think, oh God, I don't know. I don't know what you should be doing. It's true because it's like, you know, I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old and the seven-year-old signed up for something, loved it, doesn't want to do it anymore. And I'm like, hang on a minute, what do I think about this? Is it cool that she wants to quit? Like that she's following how she feels? Is that a boundary? Should I honor that? Or is it not cool that she wants to quit? And I have to teach her, no, no, no. When you sign up for something, you you have to go through with it. And it's like, there's no one out there telling you, you know, the parenting stuff doesn't really talk about this stuff. It's like, you just have to figure it out in some way. You're so right. And every day it's a new thing. And yeah, what a wild ride, huh? <laughs> So I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Well, I was thinking about this and I was thinking of a trait or something or like, you know, I was at points thinking of literal things like the gift of a coffee every time, you know, morning. But then actually what I realized is what do I need the most? And I wish it came to me without thought. And what that would be would be to know when to pause and take a deep breath. So that would be the gift to all mothers all over the world, to know just automatically when you need to pause and take a deep breath. For me, that would solve a lot of my issues because if I did, I think I would lose my temper a lot less. I think I would be able to handle situations a lot better. I think it would help with my stress. And that can be applied to anything. I'm talking about even if you get an email that annoys you. It's not even motherhood, to be honest with you. Somebody did once tell me, don't reply to emails right away. Never reply to emails right away. If it's heated or whatever, just like give yourself time and then go and sit down at a desk rather than sort of on the fly. I still don't do that. But I think about it and I try. And then you still send the angry reply. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) So yeah, I would say that that would be it a pause and a deep breath. So it's kind of two things, but I think in this case, they're coming as one package. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And I think it is so true that it is so true. Pause and deep breath. Just change that trajectory, right? Of the next action. It could change what the next action is. This has been such a joy. I've absolutely loved connecting with you. Thank you so much. Where does someone find the new book? Presumably in all bookstores, but where else can someone find you and your work? So I'm on Instagram and it's at the joy journal. And my most current book is slow down and be here now, which is with the beautiful publishing house, a magic cat who have incredible books for children and families and educational, but magical, all sorts of things. And that's available, you know, what, main bookshops and high, like little bookshops you can find your local bookshop that has them and online. But yeah, Instagram would be where I do most of my 
bits and bobs. And the book is about to come out in America on the 14th of March. So it's going to be available in the US from the 14th of March. And it's also available in many other languages, which I couldn't believe when they came through the door. So yeah, I feel very proud of it. And I'm thrilled to be promoting it at the moment. It's a gorgeous book. And it's one of those books that you just want, like in your house somewhere. Even if you don't get time to sit and read it that day, it looks beautiful. It's gorgeous. The illustrator, Freya Hartis is the illustrator and she's really extremely talented. She's brought everything to life. She's an incredible illustrator. So yes, I totally agree with you. It looks beautiful. Even looking at it, it's going to make you feel a bit calmer. That's how I feel. anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been so, so lovely. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. 